I'm going to encourage you to take a copy of the scriptures and turn to the psalm that we just heard read, Psalm 21. We'll be referencing it uh, throughout the morning, and uh, I always find it especially engaging for myself to have a copy of the word in front of me and be able to engage with the text. Otherwise, there will be times the, the scripture will be on the screen behind me. This particular psalm uh, has been incredibly beneficial to me. It contains truths that I forget on almost a daily basis. Uh, And it was incredibly instructive for me to walk through this and study in preparation for this particular sermon. So I'd like to ask you a question as we begin, and I want to pause on it and give you a chance to consider it. How valuable is the Christian faith? Just how valuable is the Christian faith. And if we want to personalize it, let me ask you specifically, just how valuable is your Christian faith? The reason I want you to think about that question is because this isn't really a theoretical exercise. There are folks that have come in the door this morning that due to intense trials and sufferings, there are followers of Jesus in this room that are asking themselves that type of question, those sorts of questions. Just how valuable is this whole following Jesus thing? Is it actually worth it? And you may be one of those individuals this morning. Because of the intense pain or confusion in your story and in your circumstances, you may be wondering if following Jesus is is even worth it. In our post-Christian culture, there are lots of ways to analyze Christianity. Lots of perspectives regarding the Christian faith. Some deny Christianity because they see it as dangerous. This would be men like Christopher Hitchens, right? Men that if you ask them how valuable the Christian faith is, he might respond or might have responded, he's no longer alive, he might have responded with the subtitle of one of his books, Religion Poisons Everything. According to men like Hitchens, the Christian faith brings nothing but misogyny, repression, homophobia, and intolerance. Not very valuable not very worthwhile. Some dismiss Christianity because the cost is too steep. And there is a cost to following Jesus. We need to recognize that or we are denying reality. And to be a follower of Jesus, a life oriented towards God and his word may well cost us relationships, respect, promotions, positions, And it certainly will cost us our individual autonomy. Others would just disregard Christianity altogether, not because it's dangerous in their minds or because the cost is too steep, but they view Christianity as something that's nice, but not really necessary. It's not vital. It's something like chocolate cake. It's good for some situations, but it doesn't provide all the vital nutrition. It's not central to our lives. And some of you already have a problem with me because you're saying chocolate cake is absolutely vital to life. So I'm not sure where you're going with that. 
So let me ask you again, what is your perspective? How valuable to you is the Christian faith? How valuable is the Christian understanding of a relationship with God? Psalm 21, written literally thousands of years ago, gives us answers to that question. Psalm 21 was written during a period of time in the history of the people of God when they were ruled by a king. It's called a royal psalm. It's one of several royal psalms in the scriptures. In fact, if you were to look down at uh, Psalm 21 in your Bibles right now, you'll notice that the word for Lord in verse 1, in verse 7, in verse 9, and verse 13 is capitalized in many translations. And this alerts us as the reader to the fact that the name being used for God here references that he is a covenant-keeping God. It's a name that references his steadfast loyalty to his people. You see, God, this God, this Lord, had made a covenant with King David. And that covenant stipulated that God would give to King David many, many blessings. That God would be David's God. That God would give give to King David an everlasting dynasty. And as the people of God under this king, we can assume and expect, and rightly so, that the subjects of this king would receive the benefits just like the king would, right? If God is blessing the king, then we can assume that the subjects of that king are receiving and participating in those blessings. In fact, part of the religion of the people of God at this time was submission to God's appointed king. You could not be a follower of God without following the anointed king. And so Psalm 21 is an extended reflection on the king's relationship to God. The psalmist has a point that he wants to make about that relationship. Now, how does he go about making that point? Well, in our culture today, when we want to emphasize a point, we typically lead with it or we end with it, right? If we want to make a point in a conversation, we start off the bat with that point and then defend it, or we work our way towards that point and end with it. But in the culture that this psalm was written, there was a particular way of emphasizing a point that we're not familiar with, and it's putting it at the center of a piece of literature. So rather than leading or ending with it, it's put directly in the middle of a particular portion. They then connect to that ideas, to that idea in the verses before and behind that central point. So we could call this bullseye writing. Bullseye writing, okay? There's a bullseye in the center, and there's, there's rings that come out from that bullseye. Well, Psalm 21 is a bullseye psalm, okay? So we need to find the center of it in order to understand the point that the psalmist is making. That center is found in verse 7. 
Here we see the psalmist's perspective on the king's relationship with God. But let's get a little bit of a running start and back up to verse 6, and we'll read both 6 and 7. You, that's God, give him, that's the king, blessings forever. You cheer him with joy in your presence. For the king relies on the Lord. Through the faithful love of the Most High, he is not shaken. The psalmist is highlighting in these verses the two-way relationship between the king and the king's God. That relationship is one we could define as friendship. It is a relationship of friendship. And his conclusion found at the bullseye is this, that friendship with the all-powerful God holds eternal joy and value. Friendship with the all-powerful sovereign God of the universe carries with it eternal joy and value. But what is friendship with God? Well, even from how these verses describe it, we could define friendship with God this way. It's a relationship with God that is initiated by God through His covenant, through His steadfast love. And it's a relationship that's rightly ordered in love back to Him, devotion to Him, trust in Him, and delight in Him. And that kind of friendship with God is not only possible, but the joy and the value it holds are eternal and immeasurable. So why is this the case? Why can we say, according to Psalm 21, that there is eternal joy and value in friendship with the Almighty God? Well, let's go to the outer ring of this bullseye psalm and begin to work our way towards a couple of answers. So look at verse 1. It tells us that the king finds joy in the Lord's strength, and he greatly rejoices in the Lord's victory. Now look at verse 13. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your might. You see, the psalmist is beginning and ending this psalm with references to the strength of the Lord and rejoicing in that strength. Now, this raises several questions, and the most pressing in my mind that we'll begin to unpack here is this. Why is the strength of the Lord, let's just pause right there, the strength of the Lord, the God who speaks universe into existence, the God, the powerful God described throughout the Old Testament as being above all powers, above all creation, that incredibly powerful God, okay? The strength of that God. Why is the strength of him something to be rejoiced in rather than feared? If there is a being with that sort of power, the natural weak human response ought to be one of fear, So why is the psalmist able to rejoice in the strength of God? Well, number one, because the all-powerful God leverages his strength in gifts 
to his friends. This all-powerful God that we see doing incredible things within this psalm, that God, supremely powerful, leverages that strength in gifts towards his friends. And that truth propels us towards the reality that there is eternal joy and value in friendship with God. Now, verses 2 through 7 describes the king's friendship with God in remarkable terms. And we're not going to spend a ton of time on here, but we need to at least look at the gifts that God is lavishing upon his king. Notice in verse 2 and verse 3 that God leverages his strength by giving the king whatever the king's heart desires. This is actually a direct answer to prayer to a specific request found in the previous psalm. God is also giving the king the richest of blessings in verse 3. Second, in verse 4, God leverages his strength on behalf of the king by giving him length of days forever and ever. Now, for a, the Davidic king, this is a hyperbolic statement. That means that it is more is being stated in order to prove a point. He's referencing the lasting dynasty that God had promised to King David and to any of the kings that would follow him in his line. But it may be that this verse also points to something beyond itself. Not just the Davidic dynasty that would have no end, but to a life that is in fact eternal. We'll come back to that in a few moments. Notice next in verse 5 that, the, that God bestows upon the king his own glory. It says he confers upon him majesty and splendor, or we could say majestic splendor. King David would use this same phrase to describe God in 1 Chronicles 16.27. You may remember the story. The Ark of the Covenant had been uh, taken into battle by the Israelites. It had been captured. It had been taken by the Philistines. And it was months and months and months and months and months later that the Ark of the Covenant was restored to the nation of Israel. And David is rejoicing. It was a symbol. The Ark was a symbol of God's presence among his people. It was precious to the nation of Israel. And so in praising God for restoring the symbol of God's presence, he says that majestic splendor goes before God. So back in Psalm 21, God is now giving to the king his own majestic splendor. Now notice in verse 6 that there is a final gift, and I would actually argue that this is the greatest of all these gifts. Verse 6, God gives to the king his very presence. You cheer him with joy in your presence, the psalmist says. So consider these gifts. The richest of blessings, a lasting legacy, majestic splendor, and the very presence of God. For the king, we can say truly there is eternal joy and value in friendship with that sort of God. But why did God choose to give those sorts of gifts to the king? Notice how verse 7 begins. For, or 
because. After all of these gifts, God gives all of these gifts for or because the king relied on the Lord. And therefore, through the faithful love of the Most High, the king is not shaken. Did you notice that the faithful love of the Lord outweighs any cost involved in friendship with him? Now, we said earlier that there is a cost to friendship with God. There is a denying of other gods, at the very least, that has to happen in order for this king to remain faithful and in friendship with the one true God. There is a cost, and yet, the steadfast love of God to the king outweighs any of that cost. And the only danger in this equation is when one is when when one is not rightly related to this all-powerful God. So followers of Jesus, we'll make some more application here in just a moment, but can we pause right here to recognize that this is really good news. This is great news. God's steadfast love for you not based upon anything you've done, but based solely upon his grace, has secured you and has secured for you lavish gifts. We are told in Ephesians 1 that we have been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. If there is an actual, real, spiritual blessing that exists in the universe, it is ours in Christ. That is good news. But there's a second reason in this psalm why we can say that there is eternal joy and value in friendship with the all-powerful God. First, because he leverages his strength in order to give gifts to his friends, but we haven't hit the whole second half of the psalm yet. Number two, the all-powerful God leverages his strength in grief for his enemies. Now, we've reached the bullseye of this psalm, verse seven, and you may have noticed that the tone of the psalm abruptly changes. It's like, flipping a light switch in a dark room. Or maybe it's like turning the lights off in a room. There's an abrupt shift. Verses 8 through 12 appear to be directly addressing no longer the Lord, but rather the king himself, the Davidic king. And since the king is rightly related to God, he becomes the agent by which and through which God leverages his strength against his enemies. Notice in verse 6 that the Lord's presence bring joy, brings joy. But in verse 8, the Lord's presence means the king is going to capture and seize his enemies. Your right hand, your hand will capture all your enemies. Your right hand will seize those who hate you. In verse 5, the Lord confers majestic splendor upon the king. But notice in verse 9, the king is making his enemies to taste the very wrath of God. You will make them burn like a fiery furnace when you appear. 
I got to be honest, I don't even like reading those words in public. The Lord will engulf them in his wrath and fire will devour them. In verse 4, the Lord honors the king with a lasting dynasty. But in verse 10, the Lord is shaming his enemies. And he removes any thought of a heritage for them. They're not going to have any progeny. You will wipe their progeny from the earth and their offspring from the human race. And in verses 2 through 3, you may remember the Lord is going to crown the Davidic king with rich blessings. But in verses 11 through 12, the wicked intentions of the king's enemies fail and they flee. Verse 11 says, though they intend to harm you and devise a wicked plan, they will not prevail. Instead, you will put them to flight when you ready your bowstrings to shoot at them. Now we need to pause for a moment. We can't just gloss over words like this in the scriptures as if they weren't there and not wrestle with the moral issues that are at stake in these verses. Our postmodern relativist sensitivities may bristle when we read phrases like, you're going to make your enemies burn in a fiery furnace. Or the Lord is going to engulf his enemies in wrath. Or the Lord is going to wipe the progeny, the descendants of his enemies off the face of the earth. But these words are in the Bible and we need to reckon with them. And once we reckon with them, we come to realize that these are absolutely words of judgment and yet they are words of incredible mercy. Consider this parallel example. How valuable would a world superpower be as an ally to a weaker country if that superpower traded and benefited her allies in times of prosperity? And then, when those weaker allies were attacked by their enemies that world superpower said, hands off. I will trade with you in prosperity, but I'm not going to provide any protection or defense when you need it. I recognize this is a poor analogy, but how joyful and how valuable would friendship Would a relationship with God and his people be, or would a relationship between God and his people be, a relationship which included submission to God's anointed king, if that friendship with God meant blessing blessing in prosperity only, and no protection, no full and final deliverance from enemies in danger? The answer to that question is that relationship would not be very valuable. Sure, there'd be some benefit. But when the chips are down and when it really matters, when destruction is on the line, that relationship cannot be trusted. 
And so as we think about these really challenging words in Psalm 21, we have to consider that the alternative to these words means it's a relationship that is worthless. In contrast to that, the psalmist recognizes that the people of God serve a God who is willing not only to leverage his strength on their behalf in the good times and to, to, labor, uh, to lavish them with gifts that they cannot possibly fathom the richness of, but he is also willing to leverage his strength in their protection against their enemies. He responds on behalf of his community at the very end of this psalm. Do you notice how, what he says? Be exalted, Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your might. So now let's take a step back. Here's the psalm. There's the context. This is what the author is doing through the psalm. But you may be sitting here going, Isaiah, this is great for the people of Israel. I'm thrilled to death with them, that they thrilled to death for them, that they had such a relationship with God. But there's nothing here for me. But friends, the reality is the God of Psalm 21 has not changed. The God of Psalm 21 is the God of today. He still desires to bless his people with unimaginable gifts he still will bless those who are rightly related to him. He will still leverage his strength on behalf of his people against those who would destroy them. But if these facts are true, and we know them to be true from the New Testament, then how can we be rightly related to this God? After all, Psalm 21 is written about and to a king who's in relationship to God. I'm not a king. You're not a king. How can we partake in this relationship? To answer that question, we need to think through the rest of the story. Now, with very few exceptions, all of the kings that followed King David, even King David himself, failed to rely on God Perfectly. Remember verse 7, for the king relied on God. There were significant times in David's life he relied upon God, but not perfectly. And the Bible does not hide those failings from us. And as you go from king to king to king to king, the kings relied upon God either imperfectly or not at all. If you were to take an hour or so or longer and read through Kings and Chronicles in your Old Testament, you might walk away depressed. You would find that the history of the kings of Israel is a record of kings failing to rightly relate to this kind of God. They're worshiping false gods. They're relying on neighboring nations rather than God to protect and defend them. Every earthly king was a disappointment to one degree or another. Every single one. So in reading Psalm 21 and in remembering the story of the kings of the Old Testament, we are left longing for a king. Longing for a king who is beloved of God, who will not be shaken in difficulty, who fully, totally, completely relies on the Lord, and for whom the Lord will leverage his strength 
in personal blessings and in full and final deliverance from his enemies. A king who will then share those gifts with his subjects. But we get to the end of the Old Testament and there is no such king. But one of the gospel writers, Matthew, begins his telling of the life of a certain individual by tracing that individual's genealogy. He traces his ancestors from Abraham to David and from David to this individual. And Matthew is demonstrating that Jesus is the rightful heir of all of the promises made to not just Abraham, but to King David. Mark, another gospel writer, begins his telling of the story of Jesus with a stunning announcement. The heavens open as Jesus is being baptized. A voice comes from heaven and says, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. So these words leave no doubt that Jesus, descended from, God, descended from David, is rightly related to God as a son who pleases him. Jesus relied on the Father and obeyed him all the way to the point of death, even death on a cross. And like we see in Psalm 21, God the Father leverages all of his strength on behalf of of his anointed king, King Jesus. He gives him eternal life by raising him from the dead. He delivers him from his enemies. He pours upon him glory and honor. He promises to Jesus that he will make all his enemies his footstool. He gives Jesus the nations as his inheritance. And he calls to himself a people who submit to and worship King Jesus. All of the gifts found in Psalm 21, every single one of them, God has given to his obedient son, King Jesus. Why? Well, verse 7. For the king trusted, relied on the Lord. And through the steadfast love of the Most High, he was not moved. He was not shaken. And friends, hear this. This same King Jesus becomes the agent through whom God vanquishes the enemies of his friends and secures the everlasting flourishing of his friends. The relationship that the covenant-keeping God of grace had with the reliant king in Psalm 21 and the kind of friendship that holds eternal joy and value is offered to you through King Jesus. And that brings us to our final point. We become friends of this all-powerful God through the one king who is rightly related to God. There may be some here that long for the friendship of God. You fear the wrath of God as displayed in this text. You desire protection from the fates of your enemies. And if that's you, can I just implore you this morning? You ought to become a Christian. 
Because those who are in Christ find themselves befriended by God. So that all of these gifts have been won for us through Jesus Christ and are ours unshakably, surely. And we are removed from the kingdom of darkness, the enemies of God, into friendship with God. You can't work for this relationship. You won't find it in any other source. No other God provides this sort of friendship. So put your trust in the promises of God. Rely on the Lord. Repent of your disregard for God and your rebellion against him and submit joyfully to this good king, King Jesus. And you'll find that in Jesus, through the steadfast love of the Lord, you will never be shaken. But there are many in this room who are followers of Jesus already. You have submitted to King Jesus. May I encourage you this morning with briefly three take-home truths. In a sermon like this, in a psalm like this, there's not a list of application points. So we must do this and do this and do this and do this. But there are some truths that I pray the Spirit will have rattling around in our brains all week. And the first of those truths is this. Number one, any enemy you will ever face is no match for the all-powerful God who's befriended you in Christ. God doesn't just want to give his friends good gifts. He wants to see his friends freed from oppression and enslavement to a powerful enemy. So all of those enemies that Paul mentioned early on in our service this morning, the, the external enemy, the great external enemy, Satan, that would love to devour us and destroy us, he's been vanquished in Jesus. The enemies of sin and shame, the enemies of fear, of darkness, those enemies have been conquered by Jesus. Colossians 2, 3 through 13 to 15. When you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with him and forgave all your trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt that was against you with its obligation. He's taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He then disarmed the rulers and the authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in Jesus. Because of Christ our King, we've been given very good gifts and we have been rescued from the grief that God will give his enemies. So in the words of Romans 8, no matter what affliction or distress or persecution or nakedness, or famine, or danger, or sword that we experience, we can remain confident with Paul that in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. To paraphrase verse 7, King Jesus relied on the Lord And through the faithful love of the Most High, he is not shaken and therefore his followers are not shaken. Take home truth number two. 
the deep pain of life in a fallen world? And can we just acknowledge there is deep pain and sorrow in life in a fallen world? But the deep pain of life in a fallen world cannot change the reality that in Jesus, God has become your friend. He is for us. He is not our enemy. So when family members forsake you or forsake the Lord, when unimaginable suffering arrives, and it will, when the doubts start to fly about whether or not this whole Christianity thing is actually worth it, God in his grace meets you in Psalm 21 with these words. You are loved by the most high sovereign God through Jesus, your King. You will not be fully nor finally shaken. So keep trusting the Lord. Keep clinging to your true King. He has won the victory. He has secured for you unimaginable joy in the future. And in the midst of your weakness and pain, pray for grace to praise God. To praise God that he's leveraged his strength to give you gifts and to free you from your enemies. Take home truth number three. The greatest joy you can experience in this life has everything to do with the reality that you are a friend of God. Perhaps you've gotten so dismayed with your circumstances or so distracted by prosperity that you've gotten your eyes off of the eternal joy and value that is found in friendship with God. God in his grace meets you today in Psalm 21 and he lifts your eyes in his grace off of your circumstances to see that all of these unseen gifts are yours. Truly, really, surely in Christ. Forgiveness, freedom from sin's power, entrance into God's family, partaking of God's glory in eternity, the presence of God by means of the Holy Spirit, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, eternal life, stability, the steadfast love of God, all of these things, believer, all of these things, follower of Jesus, are yours today, whether you feel it or not. Whether you're experiencing it or not. Because we are in Christ. So follower of Jesus, the Spirit of God is calling you this morning to lift your heart to the Lord to say, be exalted in your strength, O Lord. We will sing and praise your might. Why? Because there is eternal joy and value in friendship through Christ with the all-powerful God.